Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hi, I'm John McEnroe, and you're listening to the Tennis Podcast. Hi, my name is Grigor Dimitrov, and you're listening to Tennis Podcast. Hi, I'm Mats Villander, and you are listening to the Tennis Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Tennis Podcast. I'm Catherine Whitaker, and I'm not joined by David Law. In David's ever so delicate words, I've found someone better to talk to and that man is James Blake. James, thank you very much for joining us on the Tennis Podcast. Pleasure to be here, thanks. And thanks for joining us on the Champions Tour because you've played your first ever event here in Delray Beach this week. How's it been? It's been a lot of fun. Um, I had a great time. Didn't exactly know what to expect, but these guys are really good players and um, they're guys I've uh, watched and, and seen some of the great triumphs uh, on, on the, the ATP Tour. And now to get to play against them in a slightly less pressure-filled environment, but still, uh, still competitors, so it's still uh, some close matches, is a lot of fun. And you've been completely away from tennis, pretty much, or so it seems from the outside, for the past 18 months. Can you talk me through a little bit what life's been like for you? Uh, life's been much more been much more hectic since uh, since I left the tour with uh, with two little girls. It makes it so that uh, no day no two days are the same, and uh, no two days are uh, are not exhausting. They're all uh, they're all a lot of fun and and extremely enjoyable and rewarding. Um, but I'm definitely more tired at the end of those days than I ever was training. <laughs> And what now? I know you have a role on the board of the USTA, but I think you're sort of reaching a bit of a crossroads, aren't you, in terms of deciding what to do going forward? Yeah, uh, I'm lucky enough to have had this time off where I get to spend it with my family, and and now I'm I'm still... uh feeling like I need to make a decision at some point if I'm going to stay in tennis or get completely out of tennis and um, you know tennis has been so great to me and and I've enjoyed so much of it um, that there's a chance I'll I'll stay in it and hopefully um, maybe have a role with the USTA but if not um, start something new and have a different reason to get up in the morning and something new to to learn and to get better at to possibly be in the finance world and and that would uh, that would definitely interest me and get me uh, get me excited about learning again. What is it in particular about finance that appeals to you? That's obviously a complete, you know, complete fork in the road for you. Yeah, it's totally different, and that's 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 really what interests me. Is that I'd, I'd have to start at square one, and I, I've just um, been fortunate enough to meet a lot of great people in that world that um, that are willing to help and, and get me started. So um, I just I just feel like it's something that I was always pretty good at with with numbers and not as good with uh, with the writing papers and stuff. So it'd be a chance to use uh, use the skills that I feel like are. Uh, are more uh, more to my uh, to my liking. 
And in terms of your role with the USTA and your views on developing young players, different people and different retired players have very different views on that. I was speaking to Pat Rafter in Australia a couple of years, a couple of weeks ago, and he's taken on this new role uh, with Tennis Australia in player development. And he was saying the key for him is education and kids having a life outside of tennis, kids not having to dedicate themselves to tennis at a young age at the expense of everything else. You went to college yourself. You had a sort of more diverse childhood and life mm-hmm. probably before tennis than a lot of kids did. Is that a philosophy that you share? Absolutely. There, there are a lot of things I agree with Pat Rafter on. Uh, he's, he's a great ambassador for the game, and he's, uh, in my opinion, a great hire for Tennis Australia because he, uh, uh, he speaks the truth. I, I agree completely, and I, I think the, the whole uh, system of specialization where they're, they're trying to push that on kids for every sport, really, um, I, don't, I think it's just too young to do that. I think kids should have the opportunity to play a lot of sports when they're young, and, and you'll see talent. Uh, it, it'll come out. Uh, it's not like it's going to hide and, and be forgotten. Um, you know, if the kids are good at tennis and um, they have the ability, if they've been playing soccer and basketball um, all the time too, by the time they're 15 and 16, they'll realize what they love to do. And you just you get, the, you get better athletes that way because they're, they're able to, to compete in, in the things that they love. And if they, if they don't love it, if they don't, wanna, if they don't really want to train, they're never going to be able to do that. You can't, you can't artificially make someone uh, want to be a champion. They either want it or they don't. And um, I think you'll find that out and let them be a kid while they're, uh, while they're figuring that out. And in terms of how it was for you, you were at Harvard University, you were playing tennis there at the same time. Mm. At what point did it really occur to you that you might be a professional tennis player? <laughs> I think I was a little later than most people because I, uh, I went to college really thinking and planning that I was going to be playing about four or five on the team. And um, before I knew it, I was ranked three or four, I think, in the country. So I was, uh, I was very surprised at how quickly I had success in the college world. Um, so then after my freshman year, uh, was really the first time I got to play a few pro events, some futures and and challengers, and that was the first time I realized the that I wasn't as far away from that level as I thought I was, and so that was the first time I believed I had a chance to to make a living in this uh, in this sport. And looking back on your career a little bit, do you have a different perspective on it now than you did while you were in it? For example. When you look back, what what do you see as your best career achievements, and are they se- the same as how you saw it at the time? Yeah, I mean, I think when you're when you're in it, you're you're just really focused on the next accomplishment, so you don't get as much of a chance to um, to sit back and just relax and appreciate them. And I always felt like. I appreciated them an appropriate amount at the time um, because I knew I wanted to still accomplish more on tour. And now is the chance that I have to think back and, and really relish what I did and, and hopefully dust off some of those, uh, those tapes and show them to my kids when they get a little older and show them that I, I was pretty good at something at one point in my life. And, um, and I'll, I'll have those memories forever. And I, I still will, you know, at the time I knew when we won Davis Cup that that was always going to be a, a career highlight. And, uh, and that's still something I think about um you know pretty regularly and remember it so fondly are there any moments that every now and then keep you up at night moments events mm-hmm. tournaments points even <laughs> that that still haunt you oh yeah I mean I still think about those I think everyone almost every player remembers their losses uh, most uh most uh more than their their wins so uh for me everyone comes up and mentions the Andre Agassi match in the quarters of the U.S. Open and that was such a great match and and um I try to think of it fondly but of course at six all in the fifth set tiebreaker I'm I do think about the fact that I was I was two points away from being in the semis playing Robbie Ginepri who um you know we both would have been in our first semis and both probably would have been a little nervous so 
never know what would have happened there. But, um, you know, I think about that. I think about, um, you know, the fact that that year I was playing probably my best tennis ever in 2006. I remember going into the U.S. Open thinking, please just don't put me in Roger Federer's quarter. And I was in his quarter uh, because I felt like I was playing uh, as good as anyone at that point to, to give me a chance to get to the finals or, or the semis to play him. And, um, you know, I felt like he was just too good that year. But um, so I, I think about those uh, those opportunities. But, you know, I also I, I'm very aware that I, I won a lot of matches. Maybe I shouldn't have won or I, I, I turned uh, uh, there. Are people probably thinking of matches that that they let slip away against me because I was fighting as hard as I could in, in every single match. And um, you can't can't really uh, think about the losses without thinking about the wins. You mentioned playing Roger Federer at the U.S. Open there. That was 2006 when mm-hmm. pretty much that was Federer's peak and mm-hmm. your peak as well. <laughs> what was it like playing Roger Federer at his absolute peak? Not that he's particularly far from his peak at the moment. Yeah. What was that like? And what was it like trying to find a way to beat probably the best player of all time in his heyday. Yeah, that's uh, something I always joked about, is that unfortunately my peak coincided with the greatest of all time's peak. Um, so it was tough, and it was something where, I, like I said, at, that, at my peak I really felt like I could beat anyone in the world if I was playing my best. And uh, and I'd beaten Roddick earlier that, that, that year and uh, that summer, and I'd, uh, I'd beaten Nadal earlier. So I, I felt like I was beating the top guys. I'd beaten Davidenko that year, I, get, I think, as well. And you know, I felt like when I was playing great, it didn't matter who I was playing against. And then Roger showed me that there was a whole nother level. And, um, you know, it's impressive to see. And that's something where at the time I was just so frustrated to lose. But looking back, you think, you know, you lost to the best of all time. So you can't really hang your head too much. And, and um, it is an honor to have played him. But, um, you know, it was, it was frustrating at the time. And I feel fortunate that I was able to uh, to beat him when he's still number one in the world at the Olympics when it meant so much to, to have USA on my chest at the time. Going back a little bit to player development, there is, although it's a little bit of a dry spell for American men's tennis just Mm -hmm. at the moment, there is a very promising crop of of youngsters around about the 19 age. Mm -hmm. You've got Stefan Kozlov, Donaldson as well coming through. What's What's your take on them and whether they can be the real deal? I think it's uh, it's very encouraging because um, I think uh, having that group of them, because you got Donaldson, you got Noah Rubin, um, you got Michael Moe, you got Francis Tiafo, you got these kids that that really have what looks to me like a lot of ability. And I think it's going to be great that they're going to push each other because you saw that with Agassi, Sampras, Chang, Courier, that generation. Not that you should compare any generation of them because that's one of the best generations of all time. But um, I think you saw that once one one broke through, all the others had the belief that they could, and they're going to keep pushing each other, whether it's a friendly rivalry or a, a, you know, a tense one. However it works, I think it's, going to, I think it's going to work well for all of them, and I think that's going to be our next crop of, uh, of guys that are going to have a lot of success on the main tour. And sticking with the main tour for a minute, there's also a very exciting crop of young guys, a bit older, mm-hmm. but really threatening to take over the mantle from, from Federer Djokovic. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've got Raonic, you've got Nishikori, you've mm-hmm. got Dimitrov. Who do you see as the next new Grand Slam champion? Um, I'd say out of those three guys, I would um, I'd take Dimitrov. Um, I just feel like he's got um, a complete all-around game that can be successful on any surface. And... 
Um, it's just a matter of, um, of putting that all together. He's beaten all the top guys. Raonic, I feel like, um, you know, he's he's really improved his game, but his serve is so much uh, the main part of his game that if that's off one day or if one guy happens to be returning a serve well, it's tough to get through seven matches where um, where a guy can't uh, get a few looks at that serve. And, and Ishikori is an unbelievable player. He beat me a few times on tour um, where I felt like I played okay, and he, he really took it to me. So um, I'm really impressed with him, but I just think it's, it's a little tougher for him to get through seven matches the way he plays. He works so hard for every point and for every match that – um, I just think it's tough to have a full tank of gas in the, in, in the finals of a slam like uh, like we saw at the U.S. Open against Chilich. But um, you know they, they all. That's not to say any of them can't win the next Grand Slam. They all have have great opportunities. But if I had to pick one to be the front runner in my mind, it would probably be Dimitrov. And how soon do you think he could do it? Um, you know, there's nothing to say. It, it won't be this year, uh, in my opinion, because those guys, you know, the the top guys, the Rafa, Roger. Andy Murray and Novak are all, you know, incredible talents, but um, they've all shown that it's it's possible to to get through them. You know, Nishikori beating uh, beating them in in the Open, Chilich beating Federer at the Open, and it's a uh, it's possible those young guys can do it. It's just a matter of putting it all together. I spoke to Brad Gilbert a few minutes ago, and his take was that. Uh, Novak Djokovic is going to have a, a year like he had in 2011. He's going to sweep up pretty much everything. Do you agree? And do you see Novak potentially getting near Nadal and Federer's Grand Slam records? Um, well, it's early to tell that. I mean, he's he's obviously shown great form in, in Australia, and so he's the the favorite to have uh, to have the best year. But um, it's a long way to go to, to have a year like he had in 2011. That was absolutely incredible what he did. And, um, you know, if he does do that again, then I really do think he can get close to Roger and Rafa in terms of the Grand Slam race. But um, there's so much that can happen between now and then, whether it be injuries, a little bit of a loss of confidence, um, you know, just fatigue, anything can happen. So I wouldn't say, you know, I'm looking for him to have another year like 2011. I think he'd be he'd be happy with a year where he wins one more Grand Slam. And um, I think that'd be a very successful year for him. And what about Andy Murray? He's back in the top four. He surprised a lot of people in Australia in terms of how well he was playing. The relationship with Moresmo really seems to be working and bearing fruit. What's your take on his immediate future? Yeah, I actually I picked him to win the tournament at the beginning of it. Um, so I, I wasn't surprised that he was in the finals. I think he's... He's a tremendous talent, and he just seems to be maturing more and more. Uh, once he, he won that first slam and kind of got that monkey off his back, I felt like he loosened up a little bit and just felt more and more confident. Um, I even felt like his attitude on the court in Australia was better. He, he, he used to complain a lot and, and get down on himself. I think that's part of being a perfectionist and someone that wants to be extremely successful, but I felt like he was a little bit more at peace out there, and I, I don't know if that's thanks to Moresmo, but it seems to be better since she's been on board. So I think you know whatever works in terms of a hire, uh, I think coaching is such an individual thing that you need to hire someone that makes you feel comfortable on the court, and whether that's a male or a female, you know whatever whatever works to, to get the job done, and, and she seems to be getting uh, getting the job done with him. So I, I credit him with, um, with not being hung up on, uh, on any sort of issues or, or, or people – uh, saying anything behind his back because I think it's um, you know if it's working it's a, it's a great hire. And Mario Lobsi be a key the key member in Britain's Davis Cup team going into the match with the USA next month. How do you feel ahead of that in terms of the USA's chances? And there's going to be some difficult team selection choices, aren't there? Yeah, I think right now it's probably. Um, 
you know, pretty much a toss-up between uh, Stevie Johnson and Sam Querrey as to who the second member, uh, singles member, will be. Uh, I think John Isner and the Bryans are pretty much locked in at, at the other spots, and um, I think it's going to be important that 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 person that's uh, that's picked has to have a good win against uh, most likely James Ward, um, which didn't happen last time. I know Sam Querrey was there in San Diego and, and lost last year to, to James Ward in a close match, so um, he's probably itching to get a little revenge, and and Isner needs to come through and win that match, and then. And they've got two shots at, at Andy Murray. You know, he's going to be the favorite against both of them. But um, with Isner's serve and with either Query or Stevie Johnson's serve, anything can happen. So those guys will go into the match with Andy with no pressure, and um, that can be dangerous. Just finally, I want to finish up with a few listener questions we've had come in for you. First up, uh, the tennis enthusiast asks, on average, how many hours on court practice would you do in a, in a day when not playing a tournament? Uh, that depends which part of my career we were talking about. Early on, I was able to do, uh, I, I kind of go off and on with a longer day and then a shorter day. So the longer day, I'd be on the court for, for close to four hours. And then in the gym as well, doing another 45 minutes and, and then maybe a little bit of sprint work on the field. And the shorter days, just on the court for about an hour and a half, but then still still doing a lot of work on the field where you do your sprints and, and, um, and kind of sprint jog and things like that on the, on the field. Uh, Phil asks, what is your favorite memory from Wimbledon? My favorite memory from Wimbledon is probably uh, making the double semifinals with Marty Fish. Um, uh, we, had a, we had a great opportunity. We were actually up two sets of love in the semis, but it was, it was just a lot of fun to play with Marty because the first couple rounds we were just really joking around, having a good time, and then we realized we had a, we had a good chance to, to go all the way or to, to make some real noise in the double, so we, uh, we kind of bared down a little bit and, and, uh, and, and had some good wins. Greg Gaynor asks, uh, would you look to increase the number of clay courts in the USA to get young kids training on it as it seems to help everywhere else in the world? Um, you know, I think I've always felt like you, you stick with what works for you and your strengths and the strengths of the Americans for the most part has been playing on the hard courts, playing on the faster courts. Um, I understand the, the rationale behind having clay courts and getting kids to set up points better, but, um, I don't think we need to copy any other system. We've had a lot of success and, um, and I think if there's a player that comes up, that's more of a clay quarter in the States, he still has ample opportunity to play on clay courts and to, to, um, to really feed that, uh, that sort of a game. So I don't think there's a problem with, with not enough clay courts. I think it's just the, the way that our players have been groomed. And just final question also from Greg Gaynor. He wants to know if you'd ever consider coaching anyone either now or at any point in the future. Now, no, uh, just because I don't want to be on the road 30 weeks out of the year. Um, in the future, once my kids are old enough to probably not want to be around me and want me on the road, then maybe I'll, uh, I'll think about it again. But uh, for right now, um, I, I couldn't see myself being away that much. Well, James, it's been fantastic to see you back on the tennis court. The tennis world has missed you, and it's been great to have you on the tennis podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. Thank you. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. 
Are you a reality TV junkie? Do you ever think, dang, I wish I had someone to talk to about all the trash TV that I watch? Well, look no further, garbage lover, because Reality Gaze is a podcast for you. Hello, I'm Maddie. And I'm Poodle, and we're the Reality Gaze. We talk about all your favorite unscripted shows like The Golden Bachelor, Love is Blind, and TLC's big, messy behemoth, 90 Day Fiance. And if you're driving to work, folding laundry, or just pretending to listen to your husband talk about sports, just put on the pod, and you've instantly got two gay besties spilling all the tea and reading these people for filth. So come at us, y'all. Find Reality Gays wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs> 